Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces Podcast, episode 509. And mate, the timing of this. I'm joined by Johnny Harris, who's one of my favourite actors, is now becoming one of my favourite people as we've started to interact. A wonderful man. And we recorded this the other week, and we talk about a lot of stuff. We talk about his upbringing. We talk about kind of mental health stuff, looking after yourself. We talk about his career. We talk about all sorts of things and his acting and his processes and all that kind of stuff. And since we recorded this the other week, the uh, I believe it was The Independent did their top 50 episodes of British TV of all time, I think. And the episode of This Is England, where J- Johnny and previous guest Vicky McClure have an insanely intense series of interactions, I guess, was number one. Number one. And it's so thoroughly well-deserved. I recommend you go back and listen to the Vicky episode because we talk about those scenes a lot in that episode. We touch upon it here, but we get into loads of other really interesting stuff. We could have talked for hours on end. We really could. It flew by. We chatted for a bit after we stopped recording and neither of us could believe it had been over an hour. But yeah, Johnny's amazing. We met for the first time on Great Expectations, which is currently on the BBC. I had a small part in that. See if you can uh, see if you can catch me. But Johnny's amazing in it. And yeah, we lined this podcast up, and here we are. He's got a lot of good projects on the way. He's got a hell of a career already. So I'm excited for all that's ahead. As ever, we're brought to you by SpeechDevelopmentRecords.com. We talk a lot about music in this episode. We talk a lot about music. So yeah, we're brought to you by SpeechDevelopmentRecords.com. That's where you can get all my merch, all my stuff, all the goodness. Head over there. And Patreon.com forward slash Scroobius Pip is where you can support the podcast. Help pay the wages of Buddy Peace, the best producer in the world. John Harris, the social media wizard. Gerard Robinson, tech web king. Yeah, that's all I've got to tell you. You're going to love this episode. If this is your first time tuning in, previous guests include Stephen Graham, um, who gets a mention here. I'm thinking of the This Is England lot. As said, Vicky McClure, Joe Gilgan. Loads of really good people, basically. You're in for a treat of a back catalogue if you've not been here before. But um, let's get into this episode because it's a wonderful one. This is the Distraction Pieces podcast, episode 509, with Johnny Harris. here today with johnny harris and i'm delighted to be here with you how are you man i'm really good Pip. yeah it's lovely to be here too i've got massive respect for your show and um it's not lost on me to be here mate yeah it's nice to meet you properly excellent well i've i've been a fan of you for a long time and we'll get into a lot of that but before we do i mean you were mentioning having a a nice chat with a pal just before we started I was chatting to, to, to Stephen Graham a few moments ago, and he said to, to give his love. He's apparently he's he's working with uh, a pal of yours, Ian, at the moment. He's, he's going back and forth yeah. from Manchester a lot with Ian, and there's been yeah. a lot of warm words spoken. Apparently, do you know what? There's a really interesting link there, and it's only just dawned on me now. So the, the guy he's talking about is Ian Greenbridge, yeah. who's um right. is a unit driver. He's he's yeah. driving on uh, the project that Stephen's working on now. But Ian used to run the the Union Theatre Cafe. 
Right. And he was also an actor. So Ian and I did plays together. But I used to work oh, for wow. Ian in his cafe. And it was when I was working in that cafe one day that I got the call from Shane Meadows' team saying, would I come up and audition for This Is England, 86, which is oh, where wow. I work with Stephen Graham, of course. Yeah. And Ian lent me the money to get the train up. I was skint at the time. And I was earning like 20 quid a day in, in the cafe. He, he underpaid me, the rat. <laughs> <laughs> no, but he's, he's one of my dear friends. And, and, and the truth of it is, was um, I was skint. And Ian lent me the money for the train to Nottingham to audition for Shane Meadows. And I got the part. And I ended up working, obviously, with Stephen Graham on that. And um, it's a funny small world, isn't it? Man, I love stuff like that. I love all the little interconnections. I always remember talking to Stevie about him getting Snatch was just because he went with a mate to the audition because they were going out later that day. Right. And he was just in in the room. And they said, are you up for having a go at something? And he was like, yeah, all right. And yeah, all these small things that just, yeah, are crucial in that moment. It's funny when when you look back on them with hindsight often, you know, and you see how that led to that, that led to that, that led to yeah. that. And, and and then all of a sudden your own story becomes kind of incredible, you know, when you look at these tiny little moments of kindness along the way, these yeah. sort of moments of providence where it seems that the universe steps in sometimes. It's, it's, it's a strange thing, isn't it? I've, I, you know. I think it's really important to reflect upon, though. I think it was, it might have been affected by lockdowns and the pandemic and all that but a a year or so ago I made a point of reaching out to a few different people who had those effects and those moments because again they might not realize do you know what I mean if if Ian's lent you some money to get a train it probably wasn't a big part of his day a big part of his life if you know what I mean but you'll remember that and it's keys so yeah yeah I love those small things so people often talk, don't they, in, in the realms of sort of spirituality and things and, and, and the idea of making amends. And often I think that that's thought of as in making apologies to people when you've done wrong. Yeah. But sometimes I think it can be just as potent and, and powerful is what to say thank you to people. Yeah. You know, yeah. people along the way where you maybe haven't said thank you, you know. You know, and sometimes there's often online now this great sort of spiritual movement. There's these big sort of acts of spirituality. But sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is call up a loved one and say, thank you, or I love you, you know, like your mum or your sister or people who are around all the time. You know, not these great big acts of kindness, but these tiny little acts of things that sustain you in life. And to to make sure that those people know that you love them and know that you're grateful for them. Very important, isn't it? More important than whatever yoga poses you can pull on. Yeah, I completely connect. To that one of my favorite love songs is by the proclaimers and it's sunshine on leaf and it took me a while to realize why it hit me so emotionally every time i heard it and then it hit me it's because it's one of the only love songs i can think of where they say thank you yeah right? like it's literally and it's it, thank you is so much more powerful than i love you in many ways because i love yeah. you is such a uh, a stand it's on cards it's oh yeah I, I guess thank you is as well that's a bad example <laughs> but, but it's such a standardized w- way of expressing it whereas yeah. giving thanks for for someone of any any position in your life you know yeah it's a powerful thing yeah yeah I really uh, i'll check that song out it's it's yeah. um i know we're both great fans of music and lyrics and but it's um i'll check that song out yeah do, there's a paul do. weller song um where are ye go and it was very right. um We'll talk about it later, I'm sure. But, you know, um, very, very important song to me when it came to writing Jawbone because it was the essence of the film was what's in that song. But there's a lovely lyric in that, right? It's such a simple lyric. But it's where'er ye go that we'll never know. As long as you come back, that's all that really matters. And then it goes on and there's a, a line later where they say, you know, and you'll do what you'll do. Um, but that's all right. It's really all right. 
because yeah. we couldn't bear to be without you. And it's a beautiful lyric, you know, and you yeah. just think, oh, because it's so simple. And yeah. it's not saying I'll climb any mountain or I'll cross any river or any of that sort of big stuff. It's just saying it's all all right, man. It's all all right. And, I love yeah. it. I love the simplicity of finding those bits of, of simplicity. It was what made me enjoy pop music in, in my kind of later years. As a youngster, I was like, nah, that pop music, it's all shit. I'm into yeah. punk, I'm into rap, I'm into indie, I'm into all the alternative stuff. But there's something truly beautiful in finding a beautiful bit of poetry in some big commercial pop song. The easy example I always give is there's a Rihanna and Calvin Harris song and almost all the lyrics, it repeats it a lot, but it's just got the line, we found love in a hopeless place. Mm. And it's such mm. a simple but beautiful line. And if that wasn't in a big pop song, it would be this beautiful bit of poetry, like carved into a wall or something. At this massive you know. conversation one night, or for me it was massive, it was a really important one. It was with Steve Craddock, mm-hmm. who, if, if for anyone who doesn't know, right, um, they should know really, he's incredible, he's probably, you know, it, it, Steve's the, the lead guitarist and songwriter with Ocean Colour Scene. Yeah. He's been Paul Weller's lead guitarist for decades now, you know. He's... um. He plays with the specials now, you know. This is an incredible wow. human being, an incredible yeah. artist, one of the great guitarists of our time, you know. And and but also like a beautiful, beautiful human being. And we was having this conversation, Pip, mm. about these archetypal moments. And for Steve, he was sort of talking about them musically as well as lyrically. But I don't know enough about music to know how sometimes you can hit a home note and it lands. It yeah. lands archetypally in a human heart. And yeah. it's the same with lyrics, and obviously it's the same with scripts. Yeah. It's the it's that moment of coming home. And you're right. I've found it in certain sort of seemingly simple pop songs, but where a moment lands and you go, ah, oh, because the truth is here. There's, there's a, yeah. a, I'm trying to think of examples now, but and me and Steve came up with a couple of examples where we both felt it. And it was exciting because yeah. it was like, yes, and this is why it hits home. And we was discussing it. But there's, a, there's one in the Pretenders song, um, you know, those were the happiest days of my life. And where it comes in the song, at that point, because it's it's quite a melancholic song up until that point, and it's a sad song, and it's accepting the difficulties of life. Yeah. And then I found a picture of you. Those were the happiest days of my life. Boom. You, you know, that can hit you in the heart in that moment when it's juxtaposed with the music in a deep, deep way. There's another one in the Yazoo song. Is it only you, the song? And there's a, there's a moment in that. And it was, and both Steve and I got excited because we both recognised that, yeah, God, that yeah. one hits you, doesn't it? And uh, yeah. This is going to be. What's the? This is going to take a long time. Yeah. This is. This is going to take a long time. If you listen to that only you song, they used it in the office. I spoke with Martin Freeman about this once because right. they use it in the office in such an important moment. Yeah. And it's beautiful when Tim and and they get yeah. together finally. Yeah, and it's yeah, a yeah, be- yeah, yeah. And the lyric is, "This is going to take a long time," and it's talking about healing and things like that. And it's, I think, yeah, I love it, man. I love it. I love it when those songs hit, but also, as said, with those big songs, when it hits. Like after you've heard it a hundred times, like this has been yeah. in the background all your life, and then suddenly yeah. you, you you get it. I always remember my brother kind of sitting with me one night and going into how the king of, of rock and roll, so the, that hot dog jumping frog. Yeah, prefab sprout. Prefab sprout, yeah. Yeah. And how I'd always written it off as just a nonsense pop song, but the beauty of it, again, there's so much beauty in it because it's about a, f- a failed pop star. And it's this whole story because that weirdly the beauty. And again, you'll have seen this in scripts. It's always exciting when people do something unusual. But the beauty of that song is that chorus 
is a fictional chorus of a fictional song because it's the chorus of the song that he's written in the narrative of the song. So it's got this whole meta thing. And it it made me me think of it it, on one of the lines that you were saying. Early on in in the first verse, he says, I'm the king of of rock and roll completely. And at that moment, he's on top and he's Mm. the king of rock and roll completely. And that's everything. That's, he's it all. And then when he repeats it in, in the last verse... He's failed. He's at the bottom. And all mm. he is, is the king of rock and roll. He's not mm. a partner, a lover, a friend. All he is, that, that's now all he's got. And the beauty of the repetition of that line, that in one moment, it means I'm on top of the world. I'm the king mm. of everything. And then the other moment, it's like, I've dedicated my whole life to being this one thing. And now I'm not. That's all I've got left. And it's 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 nothing. I love shit like that. Mm. It's, a, <laughs> it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. But I, I mean... Yeah. There's loads I want to talk about in your career, but I also wanted... I was thinking, because you, you and me have been talking recently, we've both been going through some stuff, which isn't for the podcast. It's not stuff that we need to get into mm. here. But it got me thinking on a subject, and it plays into that, because it's something that's really prevalent in the music industry, and since moving into the film and TV industry, I've seen it's really prevalent there. And it's the whole idea of the sh- show m- must go on. And again, I want to say we're privileged to work in the industries that we've worked in and that we work in. It's amazing. But it is, they are weird industries. For, like I've been on set or on tour with people who are going on to do a gig just after finding out a loved one has died or uh, uh, a stepping on to shoot a scene while they're going through a divorce. Or, do you know what I mean? It's, they're weird yeah. industries that don't really accept. I guess there's such an a need to throw yourself into fictional worlds that they almost won't accept that there's a real world as well and that people can be struggling. And it's really hard to kind of, to pause, to take time for yourself. It is always the the show must go on. So how do you find that? And how have you found that over your your life, that kind of inability at times to take a moment when you might need one? To be honest... (sighs) The thought that comes to me immediately, Pip, and there's always variables involved. I think, you know, sometimes with these kind of interviews, you know, we always look for sort of ideologies or black and white answers that fits mm-hmm. everything. And, and it's nice to give those kind of neat anecdotes sometimes. But the truth is there's variables involved. But what I would say in answer to that now is that more often than not, I actually find it the opposite. It, it, it is my place of refuge. It is mm-hmm. my religion to some degrees. It is my, there's something very cathartic about what I do, when I'm allowed to do it the way I want to do it, or when I create that space for myself, you know, and I think it's the same in any art form, whether it's acting or whether it's music or whether it's um, writing or creating in some way or painting, you know, there's some part of it that is an outlet Mm. and whatever character it is I'm playing or um, observing at that particular time, there's usually a way for me to um, process things that I'm going through or have gone through. Maybe maybe not in that moment. Maybe the character I'm playing in that moment is the very opposite of what I'm feeling or experiencing life at that moment. But more often than not, you know, there is a process by where you can store it up and use it in some ways. Yeah, It's not completely useless or self-serving. You know, if I'm sitting in some kind of um, disappointment or pain or all the things that we experience as human beings, there is some kind of hope that I derive from that, that I will be able to use it someday. Yeah. It's not just some fucking black hole that I'm stuck in and poor me, poor me, poor me. It's like, 
this, you know, it has to be for a reason. And, and even if it's yeah. not, it's the human experience. It isn't just happening to Johnny. Mm-hmm. It isn't just happening to whoever, you know, you yeah, can bet yeah. your life that your, your sister's going through it or your colleague is going through it or your, you know, supposed foes are going through it too. Yeah. We're all fighting, <laughs> yeah. you know, we're all fighting the same battle. Yeah. We're all, um, or, or we're all rejoicing at the same party. Because yeah. life's incredible. And, you know, and on a, on a bad day, you know, I'm, I'm like anyone else. I can think I'm up against it or I can think that, you know, it's imbalanced or not fair. And then on a good day, I can cry at the fucking glory of it all. You know, yeah. I just, I, I'm humbled to stand in the face of the scale of it all. And, and you know, like you said, you know, in some ways we're very, very privileged to be in this business that we're in. And then there's other days where I'm fucking fuming at it. And, and mm. I don't like the, the seeming imbalance within the industry. However, really, I think, you know, to say that we're privileged to work in this industry, the truth is really, Pip, on a good day, I can see that we're all just privileged to be fucking alive, mate. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I, I was at a funeral yesterday of a friend and I've got a friend now who's on, on um, I won't go into too much detail, but they're, they're fighting for their life. They're mm. on a life support machine and they, you know, and it's at times like this that I think, you know, we're just privileged to be alive. Yeah. Really. Yeah. Like all of us, you know, like we're, we're privileged. This thing, I think it's too big for us to get our heads around sometimes that we're even alive and we're here and we're in the game and we're loved and we have the ability to love others. It's a big concept, man. (laughs) And sometimes I think we get caught up in these little squabbles and, you know, fights, uh, you know, about the universe and politics and this and that and whatever, you know, because it's almost just too hard to fathom that we're here and that we're in the game. I think that's a beautiful thing. I think the acceptance of that is a beautiful thing. I think people can obsess too much over things like what's the meaning of life or what and and all this kind of thing but i think you're right i think there's so much that is too big for us to to fathom and that's and that's fine yeah like it doesn't have we we don't need to know the answer no i mean we don't need the meaning of life it's like who knows you know yeah oh god like you know and and i've had moments where you think this is it i understand it i've got it you know And, and as an artist actually i think it's interesting as an artist i think art is a willful form you know it's a safe space that we've created whether that be sport or you know these kind of man-made inventions any art form or any sport or anything it's like right we have a period here where between these rounds one and 12 or between you know this hour and a half that you're going to be on stage or in a film you're playing god essentially Mm. we've created a safe structure where you get to play god for a bit and and the reason we do that is because we're not god it's bigger than all of us and we, we get these little moments, you know, where we think, okay, we're in control here and we're, this is our little place to say what we feel and what we think and, and express what we feel and share it with our fellow human beings. And, you know, they used to do that around a campfire and now we do it on big screens or in these big sporting arenas or wherever it is. But mm. ultimately, really, the reason we do that is because we're not the real thing. You know, yeah. whenever you stand in front of an ocean or you stand in front of a mountain or something like that and you realize we're that fucking small. Yeah. You know, we have no power over any of this stuff. I don't yeah. know if I'll be here tomorrow, neither do you. You know, we just yeah. don't know. So we're here now and we've got to make the best of it and 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 try and love as much as we can. And I think ultimately that's what you've got to keep on doing is just keep on loving. And some yeah. days that's difficult and it's challenging and it's frightening. I think love's the really frightening thing. Yeah. Because you better believe like malevolence and darkness and all of that stuff, sin, whatever you want to call it, it's real. It exists in the world. You've only got to look at the evil that's done in the world and has been done over time you know it exists but it's not the primary force the really scary force the really frightening force is love when you're faced with love when you're faced with the fact that you are loved despite yourself you're loved it's it's a powerful thing sometimes i think it's easier to argue and easier to gossip and easier to pick fights with people and easier to compete and compare and do all of that sort of seedy stuff because 
to sit really truthfully in the face of love is difficult. It's difficult sometimes. Yeah. It's a very, very powerful thing, you know? Yeah, I agree. There's there's a guy called Rutger Bregman who I've had on the podcast a couple of times and his, his second book, I think it was, is a really be- beautiful read because he's kind of a historian and a, a social analyzer, I guess. And his second book is kind of all about the deep, rich history of good that humans mm. have done. And yeah. again, I think it's easy when, because the negative resonates with us more and sticks with us more, it's easy to get into that mindset of, oh man, the world's so horrible. There's so yeah. much evil. Man's natural state is to be nasty or s- selfish or survival over everything or whatever else. And he's written this beautiful book that goes, no, nah, that's not what history sh- shows. Here's all the instances where it would have been easy to be evil or bad. It would have been easy to choose this route, but no. Yeah. People, humans came together to to choose positivity. It's the same thing, really, I was trying to explore with Jawbone, is, yeah. is where, you know, and, and Jimmy, the character in that, that I play, you know, it's very easy to point the finger. Yeah. And to whether that's, you know you know, in the, in the housing association office or whether it's in the gym to Michael Smiley's character pointing the finger and saying, you, 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 you know, because what's really hard is for him to look and realise that he's been loved. Mm. He's, he's been cared for yeah. all the way along, all the yeah. way along. He's been surrounded by benevolence. He's the problem. Yeah. He's the problem, you know, in that instance, he's the problem. And until, you know, look, there are, that stuff is around us and it is, but until you sort of face your own demons, like, you know, we all want to get on our soapbox and change the world and change the universe, but you shouldn't really look at doing that until you've changed yourself. To change Mm -hmm. yourself, your own little universe is a job for life. It's a job I'll probably never complete, but until I do, I shouldn't really be worried too much about, you know, who am I to tell, you know, a country how to run themselves when some days I can't run Johnny fucking Harris. But but once again, it's it's a job for, for life, but it's a job that's achievable and has constant results. Again, I think it can be so overwhelming. I think partly because of, of social media and seeing all the, the ills in the world, it can be so overwhelming at points to think, right, what can I actually do? What? How the fuck can I actually change any of this what stuff that's I going do? on? It's like, right, you can change your, your world, though, and that's far yeah. more achievable. It's far more one step at a time kind of thing. You can change your world. You can make the the people around you's world a better place. And then that that grows and grows and grows. I truly, truly believe in that. It's hard on some days and it's challenged because yeah. that's the, 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 you know, that's the human experience. But I do truly somewhere at my core believe in that. It's yeah. been my own um, journey, you know, and, and, you know, again, not to, you know, it's difficult to talk about these things because it sounds like you're advocating the darkness is gone. I'm not. But, you know, the point is, who am I to say that this politician should sit down with that politician and they should just listen to each other and they should just do this and they should just do that when I'm not even ringing up someone who I've, you know, I haven't got the ability yeah. in me to ring up a loved one and say, I'm sorry or thank you or I love yeah. you. You know, it's like, you know, but it's easier to do that sometimes than face our own things, you know? And, yeah. Um, you just see it everywhere, don't you? Everyone's got opinions on everything. And um, it's uh, sometimes I just, yeah, it's too much almost for me. You know, it's, it's overwhelming. I agree. Well, <laughs> I mean, we've, we've touched upon the beauty and the ugliness of the industry. <laughs> and I think that must lead us perfectly onto Jawbone, right? Because creating your own work, something you want to bring into the world, is the most beautiful thing in this industry. But also, I'm experiencing this at the moment, it's fucking hard to get independent films made in the UK. It's fucking hard to get people to see them. It's hard to get it all over line. So tell me a little bit about the journey of Jawbone, 
what drew you to, to telling a, a boxing story and 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 how it all went. Again, Michael Smiley is one of my favourite people in the world. And then yeah. you've got Ian McShane, Ray Winston, amazing cast. Yeah, yeah. How was that? People. You wrote it, it's your story and, and you led. What was the, yeah, the journey of that? Well, it's a, there's a million and one things that happened along the way. It was over like seven years it took to develop that film, to like from, yeah. from its very, very first sort of, you know, thought to finishing filming on it was seven years. But it was... um so it's a long old journey, you know, and, and the headline is it's just been this kind of incredibly, incredibly glorious experience. That's the mm. truth of it. But yeah, you know, it's it's very, very difficult to get things like that made. But, you know, it happened. So I, um, I'll tell you how it came about. It was almost by accident. There's, there's a Adam Smith, who's um, an incredible director and Adam, um, the Chemical Brothers, you know, who obviously mm-hmm. their music and stuff is brilliant. But anyone who's seen the Chemical Brothers live, you know, their visuals at their shows, like it's an incredible, incredible live experience, you know. I saw, you know, like, I saw him on the Pyramid stage at Glastonbury. And yeah, right, again, right. The visuals were taking up this whole field. It felt like yeah. they were coming into... It's a spiritual yeah. experience, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, like, yeah. You know, and it's like, well, well, those visuals, Adam Smith, and he's partner Marcus. They're the guys behind them. They're the guys who've done them. And he's mm. worked with them from day one, you know, right back in the small clubs. They used to work with little projectors. And Adam and I worked together years ago on short films and uh, um, we did videos for the streets and things, you know, and all of yeah. that. So Adam's really been kind to me over the years as a younger actor and stuff. He he, he just believed in me, you know. And um, we made a little short film one day. He was working on something, I think, and, and he had a camera, a red camera which was a big deal, you know? And for some reason, they let him take it home on the weekend and he rang me and he went, I've got this red camera, let's go, let's make a short film. do something, yeah. Yeah, and we did. We went over to the Repton gym in East London and Adam knew about my own boxing history because I won the national title as... When I was 16, I won the ABAs, right. the junior ABAs. Yeah, and I boxed yeah. for England. And it was a big, big part of my life. That was, I left school at 13. And so the boxing was my thing. It was, yeah. you know, and so it, it was something that's very, very dear to me, you know, and it was, um, and so Adam said, like, bring over, like, let's, you bring like a character. And so that was how it started, right? And we made this right. film that it was a million miles away from John. It was almost like a little comedy, the short film. And it was called Jimmy the Hook. And it was all, it was like a sort of a, an interview of this bloke who's got this fight coming up and so that was how it started i love the purity of that i love the purity yeah. of the kind of i've got a camera for a weekend yeah yeah and adam's like that adam's <laughs> like know, that he's this it. combustible sort of spirit you know he's got this incredible sort of like explosive imagination he's he's you know and if you look at his work right back from those videos for the streets and stuff he's been yeah. making incredible stuff for years let alone what he does with the chems you know the chemical brothers uh anyway so uh, that was how it came about and then adam rang me up and sort of said listen mike elliott this producers look you know they love this project and and you know and they want to develop it and so and i was away at the time i was working on snow white and a huntsman and um but then it just evolved and and i think they had a writer um in and it wasn't working out they Mm. couldn't quite work out what the film was going to be and it was kind of part comedy it was part it was becoming all sorts of anyway so that was it so the, the short version of it is there was a crunch meeting and kind of Mike Elliott said, look, we've got this meeting with a BFI next week and we, we don't know what the film is. So yeah. I suggest that, that Johnny, you go away and write the dialogue and some dialogue and stuff. And then Adam can fashion that into a treatment and we take that into the meeting. And so I did. And that was the first time ever that I'd written. Wow. Ever. 
And I, and I went in, um, I, I started writing some dialogue and what I ended up writing was the first 12 pages of the script. And it's pretty much as the film is, actually. It's like, it was this mm. um, mysterious figure and he's kind of like almost vermin-like walking under the tunnels at Waterloo in the rain, you know, like a rat sort of scurrying along. Is he a thief? Is he, is he dark? Is he like, what is this man? Who is he? Is he a burglar? And then he goes into this shed and he opens it up and boom, you're hit with this boxing club, this wall mm. of sound and... And, and I wrote it in great detail because I could see it and I could smell it and I could envision it. And, and once I'd done that, I knew it was something that I really then wanted to write about. Up until that point, I didn't know where it was going to go or what it was going to be about. But once I wrote about this mysterious character and then as soon as he walked into that boxing gym, I then knew this is an opportunity for me to write about something that I've needed to share for years. Mm. And it, in the end, what it actually became interestingly, because it's what we just spoke about a minute ago, I knew that it was an opportunity for me to say thank you mm. and to say I love you mm. and to say I'm sorry and mm. to recognise that I'd been loved by these men at a very, very, very important stage of my life. Yeah. When I was a teenage boy growing up in southeast London, you know, my mum raised me on her own and it weren't easy, you know, and these men at that boxing club, day in, day out, I say that in the script, you know, they just turn up and they changed the lives of young boys. And I knew that this was an opportunity for me to tell that story. Because more often than not in boxing films that I'd seen and stuff, they're great and they, they tell a story. But more often than not, it is a story of malevolence and darkness. And it's often set in gangstery sort of tones. Yeah. And that's not the boxing world that I knew and loved. I'm talking right. about the ang the amateur scene, yeah, yeah. you know, where, where these men are benevolent men and they're bringing people together and, you know, those men did more for diversity and things like that than any of these politicians are, you know, as far as I'm concerned. These are yeah. great men who are doing great work in communities. And I wanted to write a film about in that. in places like South London, like I've, all, yeah. all my family are, are from, from South London. I've been going to Millwall since I was a kid. So right. I've seen... Me too. The, ...the negative side of some of that. I've seen the racism. I've seen the yeah. working class people who have been kind of divided and pulled yeah. apart. And then I've seen the community work that's being done by clubs, by youth teams, by youth academies and all this kind of thing. And that's where you change it. Again, I think the the, the problem people often make, the mistake people often make in football is thinking, right, right, we've had some racism at this game. How do we solve it in the ground? It's like, well, they don't walk through the turnstiles and suddenly become racist. You solve it in the community. The, yeah. Like, there's work to do in the grounds as well and in the clubs, but you solve it in the community by bringing people together, mixing people, exposing people to each other. Because genuinely, I think pretty much every prejudice comes from people who haven't been exposed to the people they think they hate. As soon as you're exposed to them and you get to experience them, you're like, oh, right, I was wrong. It's not this big villain that I thought it was. Well, that was my experience. My yeah. whole experience was that. I, I, yeah. I, like you, I grew up around this area. So Millwall was my local club and I'd go there, you know, and I would, I'd do, not just there, but even, um, even in our, like, newspapers. I grew yeah. up in a working class family, so I was raised on tabloid shit. Yeah, you know, yeah. and and uh, forget about the terraces and stuff. It was happening in our national newspapers. Yeah, vile yeah. stuff. Still yeah. is. Yeah. Now it's shifted to maybe Eastern Europeans and things like that. But we're still getting the kind of headlines that are separating all of us. Yeah. You know, and it's done 100%. well. You could say it's. Some people would say it's subtle, but in some ways, it's right there in your face. You know, it's um, and you know, and so if that's your information if that's where you're you know then that's going to become your narrative if you don't have anything to balance that out and mm -hmm. i was just very very lucky that at that really influential age 
where these narratives start to become your own narrative, mm-hmm. I landed in that boxing club. You know, I was like 11 or whatever it was and 12 and then 13, yeah. you know. And so I was in this kind of like completely incredibly sort of diverse boxing club. It was right in the heart of Lambeth, you can imagine, you know, mm-hmm. like we were all yeah. in there together, you know. And when you're, and, and there's something so pure about boxing, you look into each other's spirit, man. When you're in that ring, you look into each other's eyes. It's one of the most intimate things you'll ever experience, you know. Yeah. Even if you're the referee in a fight, you don't get to see what a fighter sees. When you're looking in the eyes of your opponent, you go on a spiritual journey together. You see each other's weaknesses. You see each other's flaws. You see the nastiness in each other. You see it all, the desperation. It's all, you're looking at the truth. That's why two fighters hug at the end of a fight. Mm, After all the animosity and all of that vitriol and all of that, and they look into each other's eyes in that fight and they see into each other's souls and they recognize themselves. And so at the end of a fight, no matter what's gone on before, they almost run across that ring and hug. And people don't understand it. I do, because that's what goes on. It's always the explanation I give with my love of combat sports. I'm a big mixed martial arts fan. I I like a bit of boxing. I'm not as knowledgeable on it, but mixed martial arts has been a huge part of my life for years. And from the outside, people can look and go, this seems violent. This seems brutal. And Mm. the kind of explanation I always try to give is, watch when that final bell rings. Yeah. And the respect, and yeah. both the corners, all the teams, everyone is hugging. It still happens now. Is respecting each other and is, you know. I've got um, Barry Jones who, who went on to win the world title and he's now mm. a big commentator for Sky TV. And Barry yeah. and I fought when we were kids and everything. You oh, know? really? Yeah. And and, um, and even now, you know, like um, I'll see Barry, you know, we hug immediately. And uh, that's yeah. just one example. I could give you a thousand examples. But there's, Lovely. you know, but people who I fought with at the Fitzroy Lodge and stuff, like, you know, we're all still friends now. They were all at yeah. the Premier of jawbone and you know and I live around the corner from the club still so you know like there's brotherhoods there and so this is the thing if you're if your narrative if you're not careful becomes this kind of vile narrative of separation that's pumped into our fucking homes every day mm. on the, that little box in the corner of our room or the newspapers yeah. that you read then that's going to be I was lucky that I had that balanced out I'd then go down the club and like I said I'd be going on these kind of spiritual journeys really with people of all kind of you know ages as well different you know ethnicities different ages different backgrounds and you know so if you're going to whether it's the terrace or whatever and the the mantra that you're hearing is you are different you are different you are different Mm. be scared be scared be scared and then you're going into that club and when you know maybe a family member passes away or you lose a fight that person's putting their arms around you when they've they've seen you cry they've seen you emotional how can you know that narrative of you being different somehow doesn't stand up anymore yeah. And then back to the power of sort of music and art, you know, at the same time, I was starting to listen to people like Bob Dylan, uh, mm. John Lennon, Bob Marley, whoever it was, you know, and all of a sudden, these narratives don't stand up anymore. And uh, I'm it's, grateful. It's the you know? simplicity. It's the simplicity of being exposed to what they're, they're telling you, you, you to fear. In my family, it wasn't a boxing club. My granddad worked in a pickle factory. And he worked right. with a lot of Jamaican people and African people. And so just as all this fear mongering was coming in, he was like, they were having street parties together and sharing mu- music and tastes and all sorts of different things. So it couldn't get through to him. He, he could mm. quite easily go, no, that, that's clearly all bullshit. These are lovely. Yeah. These are my workmates. These are, And again, sports are fascinating one for that because I remember when Millwall signed, signed Etienne Vivere and in, in, in my years of going, it was the first b- 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 black player that that we had who became loved and embraced by the fans and I think stupid things like that those bits of exposure make a lot of people go oh actually you know there doesn't have to be this divide and this and this difference you know 
It's powerful stuff. And it's division in any form, isn't it? Art, yeah. art whether whether it's like, you know, the, the sort of two-tone music scene, all of those guys, you know, yeah. like that stuff. That, I, I think that stuff does more for, for um, unity than, than any self-serving politician. That's not to say they're all self-serving, but, you know, some of the most vocal ones often are. This is the great yeah. paradox in life, especially in this age of social media and things now where everyone has a platform to speak. The sad part of that is um, that some of the most vocal are often the most self-serving. Yeah. Well, they used to say, what is it? Uh, empty vessels make the loudest noise. And um, mm. the, the, the shame of it is, is that more often than not, the, the wisest people, the, the most benevolent people are often the quiet ones, mm. people who are just getting on in life, you know? Mm-hmm. And you get these great spiritual gurus and spiritual giants who would convince you that, you know, you need to fucking be on a mountaintop or, you know, whatever price your Lululemon fucking yoga mat is or whatever. That's not... <laughs> if you want to see spiritual people, man, you know, it's mothers, it's nurses, yeah. it's fucking people who run those little boxing clubs. People are doing spiritual acts every day, mm. you know? It's just hard to see it at the moment because this massive wave of self-serving egomaniacs online, you know, telling you that spirituality is, you know, you know, I, I, yeah, you know, listen, everyone's trying their best, I'm sure. But uh, I think yeah. a lot of it's quite misguided for me. You know, I stay away from it as much as I can. I completely agree. There's not a, a thing that hasn't been at least attempted to be monetized in yeah. in human history and, and yeah. positive things as well. They end up yeah. getting manipulated. And it all serves its course. It all comes around eventually. Shakespeare explored it beautifully. I thought in... in Kingly, you know, and Cordelia, the daughter, and you've got the three daughters, and you know, the, the one who really adores her dad, you know, she doesn't want the price, she doesn't want this, you know, yeah. and yet the two, the two who kind of want his money and everything, you know, will tell him anything, they'll yeah. tell him anything, they get it, you know, and it's like it, it's all been explored before. I think we all think we're the first generation to be discovering this stuff, and we're yeah. not, you know, I tell you, the, the best thing you can do sometimes, you know, because I think we all think that we're above and that we're somehow ahead of the generations that went before us, but sometimes if you can just shut your mouth and listen to your grandparents or listen to your mum or you'd be surprised at the wisdom in there they've seen it all they've seen it all man they've been there and done it weirdly I have that all the time with cinema my older brother is the biggest encyclopedia of cinematic history I've ever known and he'll regularly either recommend or physically come around and give me a DVD to watch because he will have heard me raving about something that came out this year that's changing everything and it's mind-blowing everything's like Here's someone who did that in the 50s. Here's someone who did that in 64 with no budget and just it was a theatre troupe that just had a few cameras and just things like yeah. that. And it's like, yeah, yeah, I love that shit. I love being educated yeah. on that stuff. Um, but, well, I mean, before we move on from, from Jawbone, hearing how important it was in your whole lo- life, in everyone that you've interacted with, how was it when it finally, it was a thing? It's out, it's available, you've made it. You've made this love letter to all these people who you maybe didn't get a chance to express your love to at the time. Look, it's been an incredible, incredible journey with that film, you know? And it it weren't always easy. You know, you do come up against a lot of politics and stuff that kind of, at the time you perceive are holding it back or, you know, not Mm -hmm. giving it a fair shake. But but ultimately, really, I want to focus on the good with it, you know, which was like an incredible group of people came together. They were my heroes. Yeah. Genuinely, like, you know, Paul Weller, Barry McGuigan. Barry yeah. McGuigan won the world title. I think I was 14 when he won the world title. 
So that tells you how much of a hero he would have been to me. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, like he was he was the number one, you know. When mm. he fought Pedroza for the world title, I think 20-odd million watched it. You know, I was one of them, you know. Mm. And um, so for him to come in and train me for two years, you know, and his son and his team and everything, Carl Frampton, all those guys, you know, I was in there with them. It was an incredible Amazing. experience. Yeah. How that came about, how I ended up working with them, you know, again, you just stand in the face of it humbled. You know, yeah. Paul Weller, the way Paul Weller, who's like one of my artistic idols, you know, he's now a dear friend. How did that happen? You know, like yeah. I collaborated with my hero. Yeah. And they say, never meet your heroes. I'm fucking glad I met mine because these are great people, you know, and watching yeah. them work up close has changed me. He's yeah. changed me as an artist, you know, and, and the way Paul came on board. Um, I've told this story publicly, but I'd say it now for people who don't know. But my friend Mark Baxter, he was one of the few people I gave my script to, the first draft. Because mm -hmm. he lives in the area I lived in, and I just wanted to see if I'd got that right, that tone. Yeah. I wanted a, I just wanted a, a, a raw, a raw reaction to the first script, and I knew Mark would give me that and and be able to give me that. And he's an incredible human being. He was a, a Paul Weller gig. It was a radio, a gig for radio. I think it was at, mm -hmm. at Abbey Road. Or I think it was Abbey Road, made a vow. And it was only there was only like fifty people in there. It was an invited audience thing. Right. And Paul loves Mark. I'd never met Paul. I'd never met him other than through his music. And when I went away, right, to write the first draft of this script, this is a good story. This is about Providence, right? Yeah. I made a, I made a playlist of 24 songs and they were really eclectic. You know, some was classical music, but each piece was very specific in its archetype about something that I was trying to tap into with specific scenes. Mm -hmm. So I just took them away and thought, I'm going to listen to those as I'm writing. Six of those songs were Paul Weller songs. Wow. Six of the 24 songs were Paul Weller songs. And yeah. um, and then I gave the script to Mark Baxter. He ended up at a Paul Weller gig. And uh, whoever I think it was Edith Bowman, whoever it was who was interviewing Paul, said to him, Paul, you know, these decades of music, you've gone so many different directions as an artist. Is there anything that you've not done yet? Is there anything that you've not done that you'd still love to do? Anything that would still, you know, and he said, yeah, I've never scored a film. And he said, um, I've read a couple of big scripts and stuff, but they weren't, I weren't digging them. But he said, if I find the right project, I'd like to score a film. And Mark had my script with him. Mark and Mark went up. Mark knows Paul and mm. Paul trusts Mark. And Mark said, listen, Paul, I'm going to say something here, you know, that no one wants to hear, but my mate's written a script. Yeah, <laughs> he went, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you're going to like it, Paul. And Paul went, all right, mate. And, and, and he took it. And, um, and, and what happened was Paul Weller's dad, John Weller, was an ABA champion. Right. And, and I'll say this because only because Paul's very open about it, but Paul's had his own struggles with the booze, you know, and he's been mm -hmm. sober a long time now. And so just something about the script sung to him. Yeah. And so two weeks later, out of nowhere, a meeting was called by Paul Weller in Bar Italia in Soho. Um, he wanted to meet and discuss the project. And by the end of that meeting, we sat there and we chatted for two hours. And by the end of the project, Paul just shook me hand and went, I'm on board, mate. And um, he gave me some some stipulations. He said, listen, you know, I want to do something different. I don't, I, you know, if you're not happy with that, it's best we're honest about that now. I'm not going to be doing the standard soundtrack. I want to be doing something different. I want to get inside the character's head. Yeah. I want to take this somewhere new and, and fresh. And, and I said, yeah, no, that's great. You know, like, and, and that was it, man. We, we started the um, project. Things like that mean that this, this thing's been incredible. And then, you know, Ray and 
Ray Winston and Ian McShane, I'd already worked with them um, on Snow White and the Huntsman and they were my, but I knew when I was writing it who I wanted to play the parts and yeah. I, I sent them the scripts and they just done it. Ian flew in from LA to do it and it was incredible. Like the, the, the grace and the, the charity that I was shown on that film and Providence, people just, there was something about it. it I think something happened somewhere along the way with it where it started to become about getting out the way of it. Yeah. as opposed to forcing it. And yeah. I think the the execs and uh, the financiers, I should say, started to realise that, you know, like the meetings sort of stopped becoming this kind of laborious sludge where you're trying to get it made, trying to get it made, where all of yeah. a sudden I think people saw, because I was we turning up in. then and just saying, look, we got Ray Winston. Look, we yeah. got Paul Weller. He's, he's in the studio working. Yeah. I'm training in the gym with Barry McGuigan here. My nose is broken last week. My eardrum's gone. If you guys aren't serious, then you need to move on and we'll go with someone else because yeah. we're going to make this. It's happening. And all of a sudden it was, you couldn't really stop it in the end. And and it just, you know, and then that was it. And then the public response to it was incredible and still is. I still now, you know, there's a, a love for it that um, was kind of beautiful. Yeah, you know, it's not it's not been lost on me, that whole project. That's the truth of it, yeah. I love it. I love to hear it. So to to kind of counter that, how do you find your art and your approach on these big productions that that mm-hmm. that, that aren't this personal intimate story and we met finally on on Great Expectations which was yeah. a buzz to be part of. I'm I've got a blink and you'll miss it scene but Stevie at an er, a very early point in my career really drilled in that there are no small parts, there are only small actors. So I'm just to get to mm-hmm. be there with Olivia Coleman and yourself and and Fionn Whitehead and all these. It's amazing, but it's a big production. It's this huge yeah. thing. And it's the, it's the second of these you, that you've done with Stephen Knight and the BBC, the, the yeah. Dickens adaptations, because you did the Christmas Carol one as well, right? So yeah. yeah, how do you find these? How do you find that? And how do you get into the right headspace to deliver what you need to deliver in these, in these very different scenarios? You know, the, the truth is like, and again, I, I think the temptation is to come out with kind of an ideology because we've mm-hmm. all heard loads of interviews with actors over the years. Yeah. And they do. They come out with these kind of neat sort of anecdotes and ideologies. Yeah. yeah. And it's all, you know, and the, the truth is, my truth is, it's just not like that. Each each project is so individual. You know, the people yeah. that you're working with, um, you know, the way that they bring you into the project. You know, look, the truth of it is now with most episodic television, you don't even get given the scripts anymore. Not, not most yeah. things now. There's been a revolution in the way things are being made. Mm-hmm. Like there's been a revolution, an absolute revolution over the last sort of 10 years, maybe. I'd have to check the timeline, but certainly yeah. the last five years, there's been an absolute revolution. And the good side of that is, is that there's like masses of content now being made. You know, you've got like, I don't know, 150 channels. They're on 24 hours a day. Yeah. So there's this massive sort of need and requirement for content. You know, so the good side of that is that, you know, there's a lot of work and there's a lot of people now getting work infinitely more than ever before. Yeah. And the beautiful side of that is that there is kind of um, diversity and things that are coming with that. Hopefully people that never would have got chances before are starting to get chances and all of that. So so it's an incredible time. Some might call it a golden period in that, Mm -hmm. you know, um, with these new streaming channels and things like lots of stuff is getting made now which is great and will, I think, eventually find its way and and be an incredible thing. The, the kind of what I would call like maybe the downside to it or the challenging side is it's changed the way things are produced. And so a lot of these projects now, they're kind of greenlit before scripts are even finalised or finished. 
So it's not about delivering mm. a, a kind of a, a finalised, authored piece of work anymore. Yeah. You know, a lot of the time when you take on a project now as an actor, you don't have the final scripts. So you can't yeah. look at it. And I came through the theatres and stuff. So it was always about an arc for me. You'd look at where your characters... But more often than not now, if you have to audition... I've been quite lucky. I've kind of avoided auditions in some ways. I that's a long story. I've managed to do that. And it's not an easy one. But, you know, if, if you do audition now for things, more often than not, you're given like a couple of pages of sides. Yeah. And, and that's not good, you know, because it's a bit like bingo. You don't even know really what the part is you're playing. You're going in and guessing. You can't create a character from that. Mm. You can't go in and, you know, create a fully kind of formed uh, character that stands yeah. up to archetype and that does all of that. You're looking at the lines and taking a bit of a punt. Yeah. And you're going, yeah. well, I think he's this and I think he's that. And if we're not careful with that, what people are going to end up doing is just playing themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, if auditions are, are run in a way where you're given the sides, you know, two days before to learn the scene, all you can really do in that time is learn the lines. Yeah. You're not going yeah, to create yeah, 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 a fully yeah. formed character. You know, you're not yeah, going to do some of the work that these great actors in the 1970s and stuff that the American films were doing because you, you can't. You don't have yeah. the tools. You don't have the equipment. You don't have the uh, information to hand. Yeah. All you can do is take a punt. And then if you go in and do that and then you, you know, you start the project and you don't have the, uh, you know, the finished scripts before you start, then, then you're, you're making it as you go. So more often than not now, when I say yes to a project, it's that you, you look at the project, you look at the other actors involved, you look at the production companies. I was going to say, it's having faith in the collaboration, right? It's going right. I believe in that. Yeah, you, you look at the components. So you yeah. look at a component and you'll think, well, this is the production team uh, behind it. So it's, you know, it should get good publicity and it should be delivered well. The production values on it should be good. You look at the other actors involved and you might think, well, I'd be really excited to go to work with them or I'd be really, you know, or not. You think, hmm... Yeah. potentially interesting project, but I don't really want to work with them because I've heard they're an arsehole. Or, yeah. You know, it can be anything, you know, it yeah. can be good yeah, or bad. Yeah, yeah. And somewhere in amongst that process, that's the way it goes now. You look at um, all, you look at the wages involved, you look at everything and, you know, you sit with whatever that voice is inside you and you think, yeah, I want to be part of this project or I don't, you know. And um, But I hope somewhere along the way, so I'm, I've kind of been talking about this openly for a little while now because I do hope that we do get back to that thing of, um, and I, I think, more often than not, the producers don't get to hear this stuff because people are terrified of saying it to them because no one wants to lose their jobs or, or whatever. Yeah. So I, I think it's just a case of communication and I think it's happening. I think, I think that, um, we need a little bit of a shift and I would love to get back to a place where when things are green lit, you know, the scripts are finalized and we, you know, we all know what it is we're performing and you get rehearsal time together to come together as a group and a unit. Mm -hmm. More often than not now, you know, you have this kind of, if you can imagine it as a pie chart you know, and this development time is this massive section of the pie chart is where execs and financiers get to discuss the scripts and discuss the projects and tear them apart and put them back together and build them and develop them. And then at the very last minute, the actors are bought in and you've got this tiny bit of the pie chart left yeah. where yeah, the creators come in and it's like, <laughs> bring it to life. Yeah. Make us believe that it's real. Yeah. And you can have incredible writing. You can have, let's say, Shakespeare, something that time has proven to be incredible because it's been performed a million ways and they've all proven to be truthful and exciting and visceral. But if you don't get given the time to come together as a sort of cohesive unit and find your voice as a company, then you're, you're leaving it down to luck a lot mm -hmm. of the time. And the one place you don't want to be discussing that stuff or realising that it's not in places when you're on set and you've got a schedule that's ahead of you and all of that. And so, yeah. you know, 
so I think with anything really, again, it's variables are involved. I think there's a lot of good and a lot of um, stuff that's challenging, you know, but, um, but that's where it's at at the minute. It's a very exciting time. I think yeah. it's a really seriously exciting time. And I think if, if um, there's just a little bit more communication really between the departments and, and things, um, I think we're on the verge of something incredibly exciting, you know? I think you're right. I think the, 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 the key bit you touched upon there, though, is, is respecting how important an asset time is. Having yeah. time to, to get a project ready, to prepare a project, to create the project and all of these things, rather than it always feeling like a race to the finish line because there's so many other shows and whatever else. It's like, well... Well, I think that's the problem in that, you know, a lot of the time, if, if you don't have the finished scripts and everything before you start the show, then you're on the back foot immediately. Mm. You know, you're playing yeah. catch-up almost as you go. And, you know, and, I, and that's not just... I don't mean that just for actors, but I, I mean that for the, the sort of um, the assistant director teams, the crew, just everyone's rushing. There's yeah. a great piece of spiritual wisdom I once heard that you save yourself from two pests in life. Hurry and indecision. Yeah. These two things will kill you, you know, hurrying yeah. around and being indecisive, like hurry and indecision. If you can avoid those two things in life, it will solve most problems. Yeah. You know, and and I think sometimes now the way things are being produced, if we're not careful that what we're doing before we even start a project is we're creating hurry and indecision mm. on set and, and things like that. And so um, my experience over the years, you know, whether that's, uh, you know, like we just got to be careful with that a little bit, I think. But um but within that, you know, I mean, I veered off the, you know, what your question was originally about, you know. But, I, you know, ultimately, I've been blessed, you know. I've sort of been blessed along the way, really. I've, I've just kind of, you know, I've, I've just tried to let my instincts really steer my path, you know. I try not to let it be too much about um, whether it's the grandiosity of a project or or um, money and things like that. Genuinely, I really mean this. I'm not, I'm not saying this to try and sound like some guru or something, but but quite genuinely, I, there's something inside. There's this little quiet voice inside and I just try and let that steer my choices and whether that's taking on a certain project or, or not, or whether it's then going, you know what, I'm not feeling any of this. I'm going to go and write and create my own yeah. because, you know, it's too frustrating not to... Yeah, you, you know, you, I think that little voice inside is the thing that steers you. And, and if you're working from that, it doesn't really matter whether it's a massive vehicle that you're on or whether it's a little indie thing or something that you've created yourself, yeah. you know, to, to thine own self be true, you know. And so, um, you know, with these big projects or things like that, I just try and always create a space within whatever project it is I'm working on, where I get my time to rehearse, where I get my time to do my character work, where I get my time to, uh, you know, do what I feel I need to do to give the performance that I want to give. And if that's not in place or somehow I'm being forbidden from having that, I politely step away from a project. I just, it's not for me. You know, it's just yeah. not for me. I don't care how big it is. I've walked away from some massive, I won't say what they are, but some massive projects over the years because I've just realised I wouldn't, I wouldn't be happy doing them or I'd yeah. be held back from doing the kind of work I want to do you know yeah. I don't just want to play myself I don't want to turn up and take a check and I think was it Noel Coward said say your lines and not fall over the furniture mm. I'm not ready for that yet you know I, yeah. I still want to I think there's great work that can be done and I just want to do that with like-minded people people who want to make great work and and if they don't then we're not for each other you know I love it it's beautiful I want to kind of wrap things up by talking about your route into TV and film and I've talked loads on the podcast about the active workshop that we workshops that we have in the UK of your EastEnders, the Bill, your Holbys. So many big stars I've talked to have come through that and they're learning on the job and it's a beautiful thing. But when I was 
of refreshing my memory of your of your back catalogue, I suddenly transported back to the kind of early 2000s. I was working in HMV and I was running the DVD department mm-hmm. and I almost got f- f- fired because at that point, DVDs were like 20, 25 quid, right? They're expensive. Yeah. And there was this first wave of five pound DVDs came out and I ordered a fuckload of them because I thought if we put them on the till, where I live in Essex, people will go for them because it was chopper and it was scum and it was a, a, a couple of films like that and it ended up going yeah. well because they flew out. But the, the second wave of these kind of real British films that were being made and available cheap included g- g- Gangster Number 1 and it was an accident, which I just went yeah. and grabbed it off my shelf earlier as I was, I was coming here. I've got Gangster Number 1 over there somewhere as well, but yeah. I remember these being those exciting things because you know they're going to be made because it's people excited to be making it. It's going to feel very British and independent. So yeah, it was that an accident alone has got Tandy Newton, Chiwetel, like loads of amazing people. How did you get into these early films and what was your route in through the door there? Do you know what my journey was, right? I, I went to um, a place called Morley College. Like I say, my, my upbringing was boxing. Now, I, that was all set. I was That was yeah. what I was going to follow. I'd won the national title and that was going to be my path. And then I, I fell in love, right? I met my first ever little girlfriend was a French girl, um, Cecile, and she, she ended up going back to Paris. And um, I was in love, man, for the first time, you know, up until then, I'd just been in a boxing gym with a load of sweaty blokes, you know. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> this this beautiful entity entered my life and these feelings came up and it was like, what? And before I knew it, I was in Paris, man. I'd run away to France and got a job as a dishwasher. And it was while I was out there, a guy I was living with got me into literature, a guy called Rupert, who was my flatmate, and uh, Rupert Godman, he's still my friend now. And, and um, he introduced me to literature. He gave me the picture of Dorian Gray was the first because right. yeah. I'd left school at 13. So, right. and, and, and I weren't really going then, to be honest. And yeah. um, so I'd, I'd missed out on literature at school. And it was when I was in Paris, which is a beautiful place to discover literature. You know, yeah. I was reading, I was reading Oscar Wilde and, and um, you know, it was incredible, you know, with like sitting by the Louvre pyramid with the sun on my back, you know, it was incredible. Yeah. And so, yeah, that was where it all started. And I really got into cinema out there as well. There was a little independent cinema and they were showing the film Backbeat. You're talking about little indie British films. Yeah. There was one called Backbeat and um, Ian Hart played John Lennon. Yeah. And it blew my mind because I, I, yeah. I was a big Beatles fan like anyone. Yeah. And I'm sitting in this cinema and I'm watching this guy play John Lennon. And I knew he weren't John Lennon. And, you know, and in some ways he didn't even fully look like him. But yeah. I believed he was him. And I just thought, what is that that's happening? It was acting, you know, and I, and I knew there was a craft to it then. And once I knew that, I wanted to master it. I thought, I want to do that. What's that? And I came back to London and I enrolled at Morley College. It's like a little uh, further education college around the corner from me. And it's the usual story. You know, it was the only place I could afford. Genuinely, mm-hmm. it was the only place I could afford. It was like 40 quid for a whole term, you know. And I think at the time it was a few hundred quid just to audition at RAD or whatever, you know. So again, not getting the violin out, but that's my truth. That's my mm-hmm. story. And that's how it was. So I went to Morley College. And that was it. And I came, when I left Morley College a few years later, it was it was hard, you know, because it it wasn't a big drama school, and I, and so you can't get seen by the agents, and you can't get seen by. So I I was lucky in that I'm in London, and in London we've got the fringe theatre scene, you know. Yeah. So I was doing that, and and Ian, who ran that cafe that I mentioned earlier, we were all like at the Union Theatre. There was people, Eddie Marzen, and we were all there, you know, like doing plays and things, and and. Um, and one of those plays I did, 
at the White Bear Theatre in Kennington, a, a director came along and it was Paul Andrew Williams. And he'd come along right. to see his friend. He had a friend who was in the show. Mm-hmm. And he came along to see the friend. And because of that, he saw me in the show. I think he came up and said hello in the bar after. And he was going to be making a short film. And all of this was unpaid. You know, I was working on building sites at the time and whatever. And, you know, you don't get paid to work in the Fringe Theatre or to do short films, you know. But Paul was making a short film and he said, you want to audition for it? There's a part in it you might be good for. So I auditioned for that and it was a short film and it was called Royalty. And what happened was about a year later, Paul got back in touch and said, look, because the short film did kind of well, as as well as a short film can do, you know. And he said, look, we're turning it into a feature film, but we've got a 60 grand budget. So no one's going to get paid. No one's going to get thingy, but it's your role and it's kind of a leading role. Are you up for doing it? And I mean, it was like, I I couldn't want to do it more. You know, I was buzzing. And and look, in hindsight, like, you know, no one thought it'd get seen. No one thought it'd ever even get seen, let alone, you know. But you're getting to make it. You're getting to make it. I thought it was, it was like a world title shot for me. Yeah. It, it yeah. was like a Rocky film. It was like someone saying, you know, you've got a lead role in a film. And, and, you know, and I didn't care that it had no budget. I didn't care that it had no distribution. I didn't care that it had none of this stuff. Because people would ask me that. Mm. And some people were being a bit sniffy about it and going, oh, well, you know. And it was like, for me, it was like a fucking title shot, man. It was like, I was like a man obsessed. Yeah. And so we went and made it. And that film was London to Brighton. And I think the original shooting budget was 60 grand. And I think they then, because of post-production, the total budget in total, I think, in the end was 200 grand, and right. which is kind of almost unheard of, you know. Yeah. And, um, but the film got, the film took off a little bit in its own sort of limited way. There's only so big a film like that can be, you know, like, um, again, because the, the dice is loaded a little bit. That's a fact. But it got nominated for a BAFTA. I think Paul got nominated for a BAFTA. Mm. And so the film sort of took off in its own little way. And um, Shane Meadows saw it. And um, and he did a newspaper article at the time. And so, you know, the, the, the lineage there is I was in a fringe theatre show and then all of a sudden I'm in a, a little feature film that's taking off a bit and making waves. Yeah. And Shane Meadows saw it and he did a newspaper article that was one of those articles about what actors to look out for. And Shane picked his five actors to watch and he chose me as one of them. Wow. And I, I hadn't met him or anything like that. It was just off the back of that film. Yeah. It's a beautiful article. And I saw it on the tube, right? This is a true story. I was working on a building site at the time. I was working on Wormwood Scrubs. They were doing building on there. Right. And I was doing a job, what they call cutting out. So I was covered in dust and my face was all sore. And I was on the tube and it was a packed tube rush hour. And this guy was reading, I think it was The Guardian. I, I can't remember what paper it was, but it was a big double spread in the middle. And he was, and I was sort of squashed up against him on the tube. And I looked over and it was me. It was a picture of me. And I was like, fucking hell, mate. Can I have a look at that? And... um. <laughs> And he, he gave me the newspaper, the guy, I've still got it, and it's covered in dust and that, you know, and, and because I was all covered in dust myself. And it was Shane Meadows saying, this, watch out for this guy. And I thought, fucking hell, I've cracked it. Like, Shane Meadows has recognised me, you know. Anyway, um, I didn't hear from him then for five years. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, fucking hell, like, what happened? And yeah. it just kind of didn't happen. And because the performance was good, I just presumed that the business was this, like, meritocracy and I was off to Hollywood. And mm-hmm. it doesn't work like that. It didn't work like that is the truth of it. But, you know, um, but then all of a sudden, five years later, I was working in that cafe in uh, Union Street, in uh, the Union Theatre Caf, and still doing plays there every night. And um, and that's when the call from Shane Meadows came. And he said to me then, he said, listen, mate, I, I fucking love that performance in that film and I've been waiting for the right project to work with you. But uh, And he did say to me, actually, he said, I'm not sure this is it because obviously Vicky had already been cast from yeah. the original film, This Is England. 
Yeah. And it was for the role of her father. And I think there's only six years between us. So the mm -hmm. idea of me playing her father. So Shane did say to me, he said, look, I'm not sure if you're right for this one, but I'd love to meet you if you're up for coming up to Nottingham. We'd love to meet you. And, you know, and and I was like, yeah, I'm on my way. And Ian lent me the money and I got on the train and, and Shane cast me in that role. And uh, and that was the thing that really kind of opened a lot of doors, I think, you know. Um, yeah. I got uh, I got a BAFTA nomination for that, and mm -hmm. and um, and yeah, and I met Vicky, who's become one of my dearest friends, and um, and so that really opened doors up that hadn't been opened before. It didn't lead to big bleeding roles or anything like that, you know, but it it, it started to get me at least auditioned for sort of supporting roles and things like that, you know, and I got mm -hmm. a good agent off the back of that. I got a good agent and I started to, you know, at least get seen for supporting roles and things. And at the risk of sounding ungrateful, it was still kind of frustrating. I wanted to be playing leads. I wanted yeah. to be playing great parts. Why not? You know, why not? That's what yeah. we go into this business for. But it did get me on the track, you know, and, um, and then kind of out of frustration, really, the whole Jawbone thing. That was five years later, I wrote Jawbone. And I thought, well, if no one's going to give me a lead, I'll write one for myself. And that was genuine. Yeah, that's genuinely it. Like, not, I don't mean that in a playing a violin, self-pitying way. It's just most things are born out of frustration. John Lydon mm. said, didn't he? Anger is an energy and yeah. you got to use it or it'll eat you alive, you know? And so that pushed me into the whole Jawbone thing. And before I knew it, I was playing a lead in Jawbone. And that's opened more doors, you know? I got a nomination for that. and. So it's just this process, isn't it? When you look back in hindsight, Pip, yeah. it kind of all seems to make sense, you know. It all, yeah. it look, you know, it looks like the universe was always working with you. But when you're in it at the time, we all feel like we're struggling, and we all feel like we're being held back, and we all feel like it's unfair, and we all feel like the dice is loaded against us. And maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But more often than not, if you can just hold your hold your dignity and hold your grace and keep doing good work and keep doing what you think is right and what you believe in, somewhere along the way, you're going to look back and the universe is going to have uh, backed you up, I think, you know? I love it. It's beautiful. And I, I couldn't agree more. The amount of times I've had invites to come and speak at music industry things, because looking yeah. back at my career, it looks like I played it all really well, but I've had to turn them down because I'm like, I'd be lying if I got up there and said that, I knew what I was doing at any point yeah. in this. I was following my heart and yeah. that was it. You look back now yeah. and it's like, oh, this happened and then that happened and it went on to this. Like, yeah, I didn't know at the yeah. time. So again, yeah. I'm not going to get up and, and lie to young musicians and say, no, here's how I did it. It's like, nah, yeah. I'm, no, I was as scared as you are. I was as exactly. clueless as you are. I just tried really fucking hard and I said, you look back and it's there. But wouldn't it be great if we just all did that a lot more, you know? Yeah. Again, not to sort of ideologize it, but, you know, like if, if everyone, including politicians, yeah. you know, people pointing across the fucking room at each other and all trying to score points and all trying to look perfect. I'd rather they just all turn around and go, look, we're all fucking struggling here. What can yeah. we do? Let's yeah. let's solve this problem together, you know? Like, let's let's just get honest and, and you know, and stop this charade that, you know, that somehow there's this exclusive club and you know that it's really cool up there and everyone up there knows what they're doing they've and they've got, got the secret out. and it's a, yeah. yeah man trust me I've seen behind those curtains they're all as fucking mad as me and you mate you know, and, uh, I love it you know, I love yeah. it well I appreciate you taking the time man I'm glad we could oh. make this happen as I said I was delighted just to see your face briefly in the makeup trailer on Great Expectations yeah, because it likewise. feels like it's been a long time coming so I'm glad yeah. we've now got to sit down and have a proper chat no so. listen thanks for inviting me on man and, and the, the, the respect is mutual and there's a lot of love for you mate you know there really oh, is and within the industry that. there's a lot of um, a lot of people out there and when I told them I was coming on and that there's a hell of a lot of love for you you know so keep doing the good work and I appreciate that thanks for having me on all right Cheers. Thank you, mate.
You've been listening to Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces. There we go. That was Johnny Harris. I tell you what else. I was, now you've enjoyed that and fallen in love with the man, rightfully so. Go and have a listen to his guest spot on Off the Beaten Track. It's a really good chat, and they really get into music. Obviously, you heard from this conversation that he's a he's a fan of music. So yeah, I really enjoyed that chat. And as I seem to say all the time with a lot of these, I keep having these ones that come at just the right time. And I there were certain things in that conversation that I needed to hear right now. And yeah, it's a beautiful thing. So anyway, I'll be back next week. Obviously, I've been here every week for 500 episodes, so I guess for 500 weeks, over 500 episodes, over 500 weeks. We'll, uh, yeah, we'll we'll talk again soon. Until then, stay safe and stay sane. Ta-ta.